I'm not alone. 88% of restaurant goers hate the damn QR code. Wow. You feel so passionately about this. <laughs> yes. Hear me. Hear me, operators. If, if, as we talk about often on here, if this industry is either maximizing convenience for you or creating an experience for you, if you are in the experience side of this industry, the QR code is cheapening that experience. This is my editorial. It does not necessarily represent the MRLA overall. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? Emily. What's with the pineapple? We're back. We are back. It's been a month. It's been too long. We had a hot streak going for a while. People were demanding more content. We said, let's make them wait. We got, we got nothing. We have other things to focus on, but we are back. It is late June, yesterday, the longest day uh, of the year. And here we are recording the day after 4th of July uh, upon us sort of a mixed bag for the industry, not a great restaurant holiday, but you know the real full-throated start of resort season in, in Michigan. June is a good month. It leads up at July and August, huge months for our hotel and resort members. What is the Daunt family going to be doing for uh, the 4th of July? You guys have big plans? You have traditions? Uh, yeah, 4th of July is coming in hot. Actually, we don't have traditions. Before I get into that, I will say, since you talked about June 21st, it was my dad's birthday yesterday. He probably doesn't listen to this podcast, but if he does, happy birthday, dad. Does Steve don't know what podcasts are? Surprisingly, yes. Oh, he's so hip. What a hip dad. I taught Happy him, birthday, Steve Don. I taught him how to put music on his iPhone, so he's crushing it. Okay. Fourth of July. Uh, it's one of my favorite holidays. Let's start there. The only bad part is that I feel like summer starts flying by once you hit the fourth of July. So that's a bummer, but no family traditions. I think I'm going to head north. Stay with a friend who has a place up near my favorite city, Frankfurt, Michigan. So much Frankfurt talk around the office. So yeah, I think we're going to do that. Maybe go out on the lake, be up north. When you say the lake, there's a lot to choose from in Michigan. Which, which one are you referencing? Well, Frankfurt's on Lake Michigan, but Crystal Lake is a good one. Oh, okay. Have you ever been out there? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty nice lake. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Good area of the state. What are your plans? Okay. The Winslow family. Going big this year, we uh, sort of bought our way into the family place up north on a lake in the middle of nowhere on the other side of the state. Sort of if you were uh, halfway between Gaylord and Alpena, little town called Hillman, shout out Hillman. Great lake, beautiful lake, very remote. Just got internet for the first time. I was like say, literally, never any Wi-Fi when you're up there, uh, which is a great thing. And so, you know, we want to kick off this first year big. We are roasting an entire pig. Wow. Yep. We have gear, a lot of merch, I believe is what you like to call it. So we have happy Pork of July shirts. Wow. Koozies, a lot of good stuff. Who doesn't love a good pun? And uh, like 80 people. It started off like, hey, maybe like 15. Are there even 80 people in Hillman? We are doubling the size of the local population that day. Surge. Huh. Well, that's exciting. I'm impressed. Yeah. I hope they all just go away though, right? Like one day of, of craziness, let's celebrate. Let's be Americans. I've, I've got some very loud shorts, right? It's American flag everywhere and, and it's appropriate for the day. And then let's just calm it way down like the day after. I like, to me, this is usually a place of tranquility, of getting away from chaos. So we'll invite it for one day. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. I just hope that, you know, we don't have any hangers on. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. Is it on the actual day? Fourth of July is a Monday, so it is. No, we're doing it Saturday the second because that it's it's for everyone to be able to be there. That's that's going to be the day. That's super fun. Yeah, take lots of pictures of the branding. All right, we have a whole lot in Pineapple Express, so let's kick it to the next segment. Emily, you want some good news, or you want some bad news? I guess my philosophies usually start with bad news. So you end with good, but I'll tee up. We need some good news to kick off. We don't want to lose our audience. 
too quickly. So hit me that with intro story news. I just gave probably lost two thirds of them as it is. So they need good news just to even cling to want to stay on this thing. Or they're going to try to crash your party. Watch out. There are many lakes in the Hillman area. They, they don't, they haven't narrowed it down to exactly where we are. And by the way, good luck finding it. Half the people get lost trying to find it when we give them actual directions. So anyway, all right. Pineapple Express, you said good news for our hotel listeners. Good news in the hotel industry. Leisure travel is surging overall uh, hotel uh, rates, hotel occupancy, and uh, it is we are we are above 2019 levels at the national level. Michigan probably will be trending into that direction a little bit more as we head into the July and August month, as we just said, is our huge, the, the two biggest months uh, in the industry for the state of Michigan, especially if you are coastal or northern uh, Michigan. But at the national level, all-time high, at least in nominal dollar figures, for uh, what's called RevPAR. Uh, that is revenue per available room for maybe some of our restaurant listeners that are not accustomed to hotel stats. Basically, a statistic of profitability, all-time high number last week. So second week of June, all-time high, basically $110 uh, uh, per room. That's fantastic. That is high tide all, all the way around. That that bodes well for what's coming for the state of Michigan, who's going to have its peak season uh, over the next couple months. So, you know, there's there, there's some some challenging news out there that we'll get to in a minute, but for the hotel industry, there's still pent up demand. There's still pent up savings that people have, and six dollar gas is not going to send uh, everyone away. There, there's still a very strong travel season ahead of us here. It's showing up nationally, and we're seeing the news in Michigan as well. So, so solid news for the hotel industry. So that means people are willing to pay that amount, which is is the good sign. Yeah, all the way around. All right. What else you got on the good news sector? Anything else, or, sh- or are we going straight into bad? Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pivot to the bad news, and you know it's it's it, it depends. It's 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 news that's not shocking. We're not breaking any news here, but inflation is impacting this industry, and you're starting to see the signs a little more acutely. Some recent surveys out from Morning Consult show more than eight in ten consumers out there are scaling back their their restaurant habits. The cost, the the basic cost of, of of energy right now, of gas, is making discretionary income, especially for lower income Americans, a little more sparse. And that means restaurants who are often a first or second choice of people's discretionary income uh, is is finding itself in a challenging position. People are scaling scaling that back a, a little bit. It's tough to say. Economists, a lot of economists believe that we have peaked in terms of the inflation. So. We should be slowly moving into a more stable territory. I'm not sure that that means we are immediately going to see 250 gas again, which would ease up some of that discretionary income. But it's a challenging place for for the industry. And you know, we've talked a lot about how COVID impacted disproportionately the independent restaurants, our smaller restaurants, while chain restaurants by and large did well, did fine. They closed a lot, a lot fewer locations. They had the capital and the wherewithal to get through the storm. And, and, and in some ways, in, in, in a lot of instances, and you saw it in the stock market, saw that rise. They are taking the hit just like everyone else, right? Inflation is hitting the economy overall. Uh, the psychology of investors has changed dramatically. S&P 500 is, is down 24% from its 50 from its 52 week high and restaurant stocks so those public trading companies in the industry down almost twice that down almost 46% from their 52 week high and it's impacting every side of the industry so you know the challenges and the long tail of covid if you will uh, are impacting the the more public side of this industry as well no, no segment of the industry is is uh, unharmed Fast casuals seem to be hit the hardest. They are 39% down from their 52-week high. I think that also means that some of the fast casuals surged during the pandemic more than some other brand, other segments of the industry. But that is a that's a big drop in a short amount of time. So I mean, stay tuned. I I think the 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 trends depending on how long we are going to be dealing with uh, a, a dramatic increase in our general day-to-day cost of living. It's 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 going to impact this industry. What does this mean to you, Emily? Are you changing your behavior? Are you going out less? I will say for the first time, probably ever, I'm paying more attention. If I go to the grocery store, I'm not buying the $6 strawberries. Normally I would just get what I need and it's fine. You're saying screw organic. I'm getting, I'm getting the mass produced strawberries. Yes. They're half the price. I am 
turning in my millennial card. No more organic. All right. But but you're still going up to Frankfurt, still making some travel plans. Yeah, the, the price of gas won't stop me from getting up to Frankfurt because it's my favorite place and has been for a long time. But I did see gas for like $4.90 the other day, and I was happy about it. So it's interesting how quickly I became accustomed to over $5. $4.90 is still way too Were high. Were you up north when that happened? No, there's a gas station in my neighborhood that's oh, wow. really low. I don't know the rules behind that, but... We went up north last week, and it was like driving back in time. The further north you went, the lower gas prices were, because I just think they haven't had the new, the new delivery at a higher price just yet. Not enough people demanding that much gas that quickly. So you're not seeing the 511, 520, give or take prices. Some, I saw some, a 479. I said, sweet Jesus, fill her up. <laughs> yes, we just filled up. Fill it up again. Well, okay, that's good. Not, not changing all behavior at all times, but something that uh, the industry is, is going to be dealing with for a while, especially depending on which segment you are in. If you cater more on the value side of the industry, your, your consumer may be a little more challenged to get out frequently. Yeah, I'm still going to restaurants. God bless. Okay, let's bring it back to, let's end with good news based on my philosophy. Hmm. We did good, bad. Let's end with good before we move into GA. I got a personal beef one we'll hit on after all of this. Okay. But give me the good stuff. I can't wait. Let's talk about pizza. So Little Caesars boots Pizza Hut as the NFL sponsor for pizza, right? Did I say that right? Yeah, but I mean, you missed the opportunity. It, Pizza Hut very aggressively says no one out pizzas the hut. They have been out pizzaed by Michigan's own Little Caesars. Big win. It's a proud moment. A huge moment. Little Caesars kind of staking some claim right now. They have, they're a huge, they're a huge segment of the pizza industry, just a little bit behind Domino's, but a huge player nationally. You just don't hear about them as much as a huge player. And they, they operate quietly for the size and scope of, of their business. And I think this is a big, big play by them. To be the official partner of the NFL is going to get them a lot of coverage, uh, a lot of games. There's, there's nothing drawing more eyes to live TV right now than, than professional sports and football leading that pack by a long way. So that's a big investment made and, and a smart one. Similar story in Cranes recently about how they want to double the size of their total franchisee locations. I, I think you're seeing some big moves uh, by Little Caesars. And in the environment we just talked about, $5 hot and ready, which I believe is now five fifty five, but still is a smart play, a very smart hedge for those still looking for value. And I think uh, Little Caesars is poised to see some some big growth in that space. So smart move by them. I like it. You big, you big hot and ready fan? For the sake of my job, I'll say yes. Oh, I like that. Listen, the pure convenience. We know this industry is either experience or convenience now with not as much in between. They own the convenience space. Yeah. The whole locker that you can go in, have the pre-made pizza. You've got a couple options, not all the options, but there are a few options you can get in quickly. My kids love a pizza pizza. Yeah, there's one right by my house and the line is always like 10 cars deep for that drive-through. So people love it. Nice. I like that. I like that. I miss the, you're dramatically younger than me. Did you, okay. the, the Little Caesars play places, is that, was that ever in oh, your universe yeah. growing up? Those were great. The one over by in Okemos by the mall. Oh yeah. That was so many birthday parties growing up. You don't see those too often anymore. Really, really went in a different direction, Little Caesars, but uh, but those were very special. They should, you know what? I should reach out to their marketing marketing team. They should create one of those as like a pop up, and and millennials would just go there in droves. The Instagram traffic. I might have something here. Chris Illich, if you're listening, and I presume you are, let reach out. We're going to make this happen. The MRLA will sponsor it. Okay. Continuing on the, the pizza train here, National Detroit Style Pizza Day is June 23rd. I guess we've already given the date away of what day we're recording this. So it's tomorrow. Hopefully this episode's coming out on the day of. Buddy's Pizza, who we have had on this podcast before, is partnering with Salvation Army and donating $1 from every pizza sold on National Detroit Style Pizza Day to the Salvation Army, 21 locations across the state. Excellent. That's up. Perfect plug. Good team player. Buddy's always giving back to the community, always has. That's, uh, I appreciate you referencing that. And uh, Buddy's continues to be a leader and the real father of the Detroit style pizza, which, you know, we are all big fans of here. We really, I mean, we should consider just renaming this podcast, What's with the Pizza? It's at the end of the day, we're, we're talking pizza pretty much every episode. Pizza and Taco Bell. A little bit of Taco Bell. 
Are you, do you want to talk to, do you have another talk? You can't possibly have another Taco Bell story. No, you made me delete it from the lineup. Will you be leaving us to work in the marketing department at Taco Bell? No, I'm not even like a big Taco Bell fan. They just put their stuff out there so often. I'm a fan of their marketing that I catch tactics. It. I think they've done a fantastic job on the marketing side, drawing genuine interest in so across all social media. They launched Taco Bell Defy. That's all I'll say. Justin made me cut it from the, the episode outline, but it's essentially a bank for tacos. I'm going to leave that there. But, you know, for those who just got interested in banking on tacos, check it out. Taco Bell Defy. All right. The one thing I want to leave on before we leave this segment, it, oh, another, yeah. another new story validating my opinion, which I feel very strongly about. And I'm just putting myself at risk in an industry that we represent. Yeah, you are. I hate the QR code. I hate the QR code menu. I, I do. I do. It, 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 it cheapens the experience and it's frustrating to me. I'm not alone. 88% of restaurant goers hate the damn QR code. Wow. You feel so passionately about this. Yes. Hear me. Hear me, operators. If, if, as we talk about often on here, if this industry is either maximizing convenience for you or creating an experience for you, if you are in the experience side of this industry, the QR code is cheapening that experience. This is my editorial. It does not necessarily represent the MRLA overall. I get why. I certainly get why. I've, I've talked in interviews frequently about the fact that when you have to change your menu, because you don't know what you're going to be able to get off of your distribution truck in a given week because yeah. we have supply chain issues, it makes sense to make your, your menu more malleable. When we were struggling even more acutely with labor and you didn't know if you were going to have your full force, half of it, three-fourths, you, know, you had to simplify your menu to be able to run your restaurant that day as well. So the QR code makes sense. I just hate it. And a lot of people feel the same way. It is harder to read. It does feel like reading it on a menu and making the selection based on what you see on your phone. I don't know. It feels like it's, it actually feels like the meal is now going to be less good when it comes out. And I, I'm coming in real hot on here. Where, where are you at? So you, one thing I know about you is that you hate QR codes, period. <laughs> That's true. I can't believe they made a comeback. So all things QR codes for the last several years, every flyer I make, you dislike the QR code that's on it. So 88%, Emily. As far as QR code menus go, I can agree with you on that. I don't need to spend more time on my phone or on a screen. So when I go to dinner with someone, I'm not wanting to look at my phone. It, it interrupts the conversation almost when you're, even if you're just looking at the menu. So yeah. And, and by the way, 10 times out of 10, I'm a phone addict. I'm going to see some push notification while I'm on my way to go look or, or bring up the menu and then be completely distracted and start reading a story uh, maybe about the industry that, you know, now I'm getting yelled at by my wife at the restaurant because I'm not paying attention to anything or even looking up the menu. You can see personally, this is very challenging. Yeah, this has really impacted you. <laughs> uh, but the people agree with you. So I hate saying this, but I think you were right on this one. Oh, I think we just got our, our lead, our lead in right there. Joe, cut that right there. Okay. That is a lot of coverage and a lot of ground on the Pineapple Express segment. Where are we going? Are we going to GA? Yeah, let's talk about, for Fork's sake, what's going on uh, in the government affairs world. We always hit some of the same topics. We're not even going to hit them. We have new stuff to talk about. Minimum wage. You don't want me to talk about appropriations, how I think we're so close. I wasn't going to bring it up. I wasn't going to <laughs> bring skipping. it up. Yeah, minimum wage. So we were tracking the what was called the raise the wage ballot proposal for all of 2022. Uh, it's been brought up on this podcast in the past. Uh, for those first time listeners, it would have raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2027. And more importantly, for a lot of restaurant operators, full service restaurant operators would have eliminated the tip credit, the separate tipped minimum wage. So those servers would be making the full minimum wage of $15 an hour in addition to any tips that they would receive uh, on top of that. That's very challenging, as we know, for restaurant economics, something our members were very concerned about. It's an existential issue for many of them, especially on the independent side. So... June 1st was a big submission day. They had to submit a, a number of signatures, 340,000 ballot signatures, this group, to get themselves on the November ballot. They did not. They did not submit signatures, period. I think that was surprising to us. In short, that means this issue will not be available on the 2022 
ballot. You will not see it at all. The status quo will stay the same. And it's possible, however, that this group will submit signatures a little bit later this summer uh, to try to get on the 2024 ballot. So stay tuned. In the short term, this is not something that immediately is in front of you, but something we're still closely monitoring. If this group submits signatures and this is going to impact the 2024 race, we will be, excuse me, the 2024 ballot, we will be monitoring closely and deciding how best to represent the industry. But good news, at least in the short term. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have your back every step of the way. There's the plug. Oh, nice plug. Okay. Moving on to alcohol. A lot happening in the alcohol space government affairs wise for this industry. Do you want to give a rundown? So we're putting alcohol in pools and in the hands of 17 year olds for the first time ever, ever. Yeah. These are, I'm, you know, I'm, I've been fascinated by the amount of media attention <laughs> these issues have had. Maybe they just got a little bored of us talking uh, about restaurant economics. Certainly you get bored when I talk about restaurant <laughs> economics. So a lot of a lot of buzz, a lot of talk about uh, Michigan adding swim up bars, and that is because a specific resort in the Frankenmuth area is looking to build a a sort of world renowned is that is that too big to say certainly regionally significant water park that would that aims to draw people not just from Michigan but Ohio, Indiana, uh, Illinois, and part of the desire to make that a a a huge draw is an amenity like a swim up bar. That adds a, a layer of fun, especially for, for the parents. Yep. You're going to be in the pool with your kids all day. Grabbing a cocktail and helping you get through that process is going to improve that process. And, you know, it's going to help the bottom line. It's going to uh, create jobs in the Frankenmuth area. You know that tourism is huge in that area. I'll be interested to see how many people follow suit. Michigan is not new. Uh, we did not trailblaze on this one. We are the 25th or 26th uh, state to allow for swim up bars. But will we see some of our other large resorts that have water parks like a Boyne? Uh, will they expand and, and, and offer this as well? Will someone else make this a niche market and, and, and really get into this space as well? I don't know, but it, it creates new opportunity and it's been pretty well received overall. It's definitely getting a lot of, a lot of interest, which is, which is good. The other big piece on the 17-year-olds, I mean, as of right now, and people don't fully recognize this, but you can be an 18-year-old server and deliver alcohol. You can be an 18-year-old bartender and make cocktails. That doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. And so people listening should understand that just because you can allow a 17-year-old to be your bartender doesn't mean you should and doesn't mean a lot of people will. I think this will also be used sparingly in areas that really need the workforce support. They, they lack the labor. We know the industry overall still is, is struggling to get the labor it needs to meet demand. This is going to help. It doesn't change the industry overnight, but it is going to help those I think especially in those those areas where we talked about it, it's, it's resort season, you are in an area with a small local population and a surging tourism population. Uh, if you have some high school workers out there that can help you distribute some of the drinks that your guests are ordering while on vacation, that's going to make a better experience for everyone all the way around. So big wins there for the industry, and uh, we're happy to help deliver them. And two big things on the 17-year-old serving alcohol front. Uh, is that you do have to have an 18-year-old on-premise also working. Not that anyone would have just a floor full of 17-year-olds serving, but there are rules associated with it. So you have to have an 18-year-old on-premise, and they have to be licensed uh, with the Serve Safe Alcohol Responsible Training. And the MRLA is offering a 25% discount to members or non-members. Whoa, huge plug. 25% discount, huge. We know that a lot of people are going to need this training now as they branch into this. So made sense to try to make sure this was as convenient and easy for members as possible. That's a full-throated plug right there. And the, the training is required. So just providing solutions left and right. All right. Did we, did we cover all things you wanted to cover on For Fork's Sake or anything else in the GA world you think we need to hit on before we bring in our guest? Is there anything you want to talk about in terms of the governor's race since the last time that we were on this podcast? Let me check my phone. Are there any candidates still available to run for governor on the Republican side of the ticket? Still, still five. That is about half of where uh, the state was just a little bit ago. We know that the governor is uh, unopposed. And so obviously we'll be on the uh, general election ticket. The Republican side for governor keeps shrinking. We are down to Five candidates left. Some polling came out last week that I believe had Ryan Kelly in the lead. Actually, really, the person really in the lead here is a person by the name of Undecided. 
Yeah. Which is about half of all of all Republican primary voters. Uh, so that race, it is crazy. We are in late June. Absentee ballots are going out. This race is is upon us, you know, just a little over a month away. I don't think anyone in Michigan has any idea who they're voting for on the Republican side of the ticket. So that race is absolutely uh, wide open right now. It's fascinating. Should be interesting. Yeah. All right, let's move into our interview. Let's do it. Okay, today with us, we have Patty James, who's a PhD professor at Grand Valley State University and also started an organization called Michigan Cares for Tourism, which is an organization that the MRLA knows a lot about and has worked with uh, for quite a few years now. Dr. Patty Janes is a professor in the Department of Hospitality and Tourism Management at GVSU. She joined them in 2012 after Central Michigan University Fire Up Chips, where she was a professor in the Recreation Parks and Leisure Services Administration Department for 21 years. She has taught 20 different courses in hospitality, tourism, and recreation. However, her primary teaching areas include marketing and research. Although in a full-time academic career, she continues her work within the tourism industry through consulting projects with various nonprofit and for-profit industry organizations, one of which is Michigan Cares for Tourism, of which Patty has led since 2013. Michigan Cares for Tourism is a 100% volunteer, 100% give back partnership where tourism professionals come together to help restore Michigan's historic, cultural, and natural attractions. Michigan Cares for Tourism is a volunteer-based program that coordinates an annual cleanup event at Michigan Tourism Treasure that is in need of support always. I'm pretty excited that Patty is with us. She is a superstar. She is such an advocate for tourism in the state of Michigan, something that we're going to talk about, something that I think we are not anywhere near our ceiling on, and I'm interested in her thoughts on, on how we get there. And she is also an individual who has, what's the, what's the phrase people use, a, a smile that brightens a room? She has that in spades. You mix that with her optimism in general, and you are buying into what she is selling. We are big fans of Michigan Cares for Tourism at the Association. It is a a staff team building day is what we call it, frankly, (laughs) Uh, where we have uh, everyone uh, at the MRLA staff engaged each year in the Michigan Cares for Tourism volunteer days. uh, And I'm eager to talk about that as well. So let's bring her on. Okay, Patty James, welcome to What's with the Pineapple. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I'm excited uh, about this in this interview. You are a lifer uh, in this industry and maybe the best advocate for tourism in Michigan. How did it all start? I know you worked in this industry for Marriott for a few years. Uh, maybe walk us through some of that experience and then how you made that transition. It doesn't happen that often of, of working in industry to being a professor of industry. I think that's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for the lovely welcome. I, I'm beyond excited to be here and join you. And again, I have been loving this podcast so much. And, and there are really few that help us learn and have fun and are dedicated to our industry like you guys are doing. So thanks for that. We um, did not pay her to say that. I know, not at all. <laughs> that might be the new lead in, Joe. You could pay me, though, if that was no. <laughs> so you know, probably a background no different than anybody else. You start as a young person and my first job was 16. My first paid real job was 16 at McDonald's. And when you start serving people at McDonald's before they have a drive-through, that tells you how old I am, right? That you, you just really either love it or you don't. And I loved it. So every other job through college and uh, the like had related to our industry, whether it was a camp or a restaurant or a lot of food service background, like so many of my students now, and then fell into the degree. I wasn't going to get a degree in hospitality and tourism, but uh, when I loved it so much and couldn't imagine doing anything else, it just made sense. So after I was done with my undergraduate degree, I moved to Chicago uh, land area and started working for corporate Marriott and just fell in love with them as a company. They, I always said, if I owned a company, I would, I would run it a lot like a Marriott, super into standards and high expectations with service, but really dedicated to employees. And that was probably my favorite part. They super committed to training, super committed to promote from within, right? Mentoring, lots of opportunities at the time. This was now mid eighties, right? So lots of growth in their brands. 
Um, at the time, they were building the Courtyard by Marriott brand. I worked for full service hotels and resorts, started as a purchasing agent. Then I, I was a restaurant manager. Then I moved into events, which is what I really wanted to do. After events, I switched divisions to Courtyard by Marriott and then ended up in sales. And then I ended up a regional director of marketing for eight of the courtyards all over the Midwest that we were opening at the time. So the last one I opened was Auburn Hills, Michigan. And now, now we're like early 90s by then. And the irony was I ended up in that role doing a lot of training we had sales staff at that time. We had sales staff in every hotel that actually reported to me. On, they didn't report to the general manager. And because we hired general managers at that time in courtyards to be operators. And then we left sales and marketing to sales and marketing people kind of idea. And they have since changed that model, but wisely, you know, to, do, to manage all their brands together, which made a lot more sense. But at the time, it was really an exciting opportunity. I, you know, got to travel a lot was working for Marriott uh, in different locations, obviously multi-product and, and just fell in love with training. So simultaneously, I was living in the Detroit market at the time and Wayne County Community College wanted someone to teach a night class in uh, hospitality. And I thought, gosh, I just love this training stuff so much. I should, I should just see if that would be a good thing at night, you know, in my side life. And and I loved it. I, you know, it was non-traditional students. They were all adults trying to repurpose. I was in Detroit, Detroit downtown. It was just an exciting chance. And I really just loved the classroom. And, and if I knew if I stayed with Marriott to be a trainer, I would have to move to DC. And I was already back in Michigan and I got tired of taking every vacation to Michigan when I lived outside of Michigan to visit family and friends. And so I decided to make a call to my alma mater and I had was a Central Michigan University graduate um, at chips. the time. Pardon? Fire up chips. Me oh, too. there we go. There we go. <laughs> and Marriott was actually paying for my master's degree. And it wasn't like I thought I'd get a master's degree, but when they dangle this education benefit in front of you, I, I said, how could I not? So I had spent four years taking a class at a time simultaneously, and I was just about done with my master's. And then I just thought, gosh, I wonder how people get into higher education. And I'm kind of embarrassed by this, but it, it, it speaks to your question because I'm like, how do people actually get in those jobs? Because like, I, I really had no idea. So I called my alma mater and I just said, hey, how do people do that? And if I want to do that in like 10 years, what would I need to do? And literally, and you talk about, um, you know, moment of life that just changes everything is the department chair of, of my former department said to me, I can't believe you called today because a faculty member who had been there for 25 years just resigned. And he said, would you consider the role? And I, and would you come interview? And I'm like, geez, I don't even have a resume together. You know, this is not good. So I'm not sure I'm a but, believer in fate per se, but that seems almost like just straight up destiny waiting to happen. That timing is amazing. Oh, I still, I still get goosebumps. You know, it's funny. And, and so when I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll come. So I went and interviewed, got a resume together, went and interviewed. And then I took a 70% pay cut to go teach for a living, you know, and I moved back to Mount Pleasant. I'm, I had my master's done, but they put in my contract that I had to go get a PhD. So I take this monster pay cut to do something I think I'm called to do because money in our industry, as we all know, isn't the reason we got into it. We got into it because we love what we were doing and money eventually comes as a result of loving what you do. And um, the irony is Marriott then hired me to be a trainer for them remotely, way progressive, right? I worked out of Mount Pleasant, Michigan as a trainer for Marriott and delivered a nationwide training program to general managers to teach them to be sales and marketing people. So I went to 20 cities. I wrote the program and I went to 20 cities over a year and a half and really a life-changing experience with that too. So I got to stay with Marriott for my first two years of teaching. So nice. kind of a convoluted story and everybody has one. That's what I love about our industry. Everybody, everybody comes from different routes and paths and, and, and that was it. And then I, I eventually got my PhD from Michigan state. Thank goodness. I have, qu I have questions a, there. And, and by the way, go green. 
Yeah. Well, see, I know. See, I, I just, that's, I have lots of loyalty to the whole state. And now that I've had three kids go to three different universities in the state, I, I love them all. <laughs> it shows. I, I have to know because it shows up on your LinkedIn as a, you're a doctor of philosophy. That's the most fascinating part to me. Your PhD, it's that tourism and labor relations makes sense to me. Why is that a doctor of philosophy? Well, you know, there's different um, advanced degrees, right? You can get like an EDD or a PhD and a PhD how I've always just said it is it has a, a research emphasis and they kind of call it the, they kind of call it the highest of doctorates for academic people because of the research component. And really a third of my job is to do research. I love that part too. So I feel really lucky that I have this really unique job description as a faculty member that I get to do service to the industry. I get to do research on any subject I am passionate about to try and move it forward. And I get to teach and work with people, right? To, to move the industry forward. When people say, what do you do for a living? I go, all I'm trying to do is move the industry forward. But I do that through teaching. I do it through service and I do it through research. So I have the best job in the world. <laughs> and I, I have pinched myself for 32 years in that capacity. And, but thanks for letting me revisit the past. I, sometimes I forget how, lucky I've been and the doors that have opened with great mentors and great humans and great organizations. Let's, let's start there. You know, if Marriott hadn't done what they had done, I wouldn't be here. If that door hadn't opened at CMU, I wouldn't be here. You know, if Grand Valley hadn't been so gracious when I started there 10 years ago, you know, it, it, my whole life would be different. Well, I think it helps expand to the perception of what's possible with a career in this industry. Because sometimes I think you just get pigeonholed. Am I just going to be a restaurant manager? Am I going to be a general manager of, of a hotel or a resort? And is that is that literally the the only pathway? There are so many others that are broader and, and yours is, well, somewhat unique. There's only so many that are going to be in the academic world. It is an absolute avenue. Uh, and to me, one that I think we could use a little more supply of going forward. So you're a bit of a trailblazer. And I appreciate, I appreciate being able to, to highlight that because it's, it's a great career. What happens? So what is the day-to-day -day like at GVSU? Are you doing, are you still conducting a lot of interesting research? What is, what is top of mind or what are you focused on right now? Well, I, I like to think so. Cause in fact, I've got a stack of it right next to me, you know, unique mm -hmm. to when COVID hit and let's go back to that. It provided an opportunity to do something I'd wanted to do for a really long time. And that's just free research for any hospitality organization that wanted it. And you know, it's my dream that everybody has data. I teach research. I teach marketing and research primarily at Grand Valley for, for our tourism, hospitality and tourism students. And, and if I had, I've taught 21 different classes, but those are my two, like I, my super passion areas. And as a result of COVID, as soon as it hit and, you know, anybody who wasn't like, I wasn't directly impacted, right. I got to keep my job. It, I got, it changed my, my job changed a lot. We were now at home trying to teach. I mean, all that changed, but when you saw our industry be so devastated, it really, huh, it was really horrible. And I thought, well, what can I bring to the table? Like, what do you got in your, in your bag of tricks? And I said, well, I can pull my research thing out of my hat. So I contacted all of the convention and visitor bureaus in the state. And I said, with my students help in my research class, we will conduct a free visitor study for any convention and visitor bureau that wants one done with the intention of helping, because I already knew uh, many convention visitor bureaus couldn't afford big research studies, but maybe we could, and I could with students and they could learn and connect with the industry very directly. And we conducted in the two, last two years, we conducted 28 different visitor studies for destinations all over the state simultaneously because of my partnership with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and what I know and how they use their research, we, we did the same thing for the MDNR and we were doing studies on 75 of their campgrounds, visitor studies again. So, so I've been overwhelmingly consumed by visitor data in the last couple of years. And, you know, if I have to chalk up a couple of things in my career as my favorite moments, it was that to work very directly with students on very real research. And I, you know, I always say I've never tried anything like it in the past. I couldn't even believe we were trying to manage so many studies at once. We didn't do all 28 at once. Those were over two years, but it was pretty, pretty overwhelming. And so 
I've just taken all the beach towns in Michigan and combined that data right now. That's what I'm looking at today and looking to see what kind of patterns exist with just our beach towns. So I have this unique data set. It's like my dream, my dreamland, right? And so I'm trying to figure out how, if, if at all, right, there's information that could help the industry. Well, then you are the perfect person to ask uh, because I, and I promise we're going to get into Michigan Cares for Tourism. That is something we want to spend a, a lot of time talking about, but I am fascinated, especially in the wake of all of this research. My, my sense, and it has been this way for a while, is while Pure Michigan has been tremendous and I think taking us from where we were in the first decade of this century to where we are right now, that there's just so much space to grow that we are far away from the ceiling. I think what we have to offer in fresh water, especially as that feels increasingly like a, a scarce resource that makes Michigan unique and, and has a chance to be the thing people think about when they think about Michigan first and, and maybe not an auto industry or the Rust Belt or something of the 20th century and not something of the future. How far are we from, from reaching a ceiling? Because to me, it feels like there's so much more opportunity to, to expand travel and tourism in Michigan. Oh, gosh, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to ask that question, but absolutely in healthy ways, right? We want to protect the resource always, right? So you don't want overuse. And, and even during COVID, I think some of our outdoor spaces saw some of that overuse. And so you got to take a step back and make sure you're protecting the resource because it is, I, I you know, I, I call it the foundation of all tourism is natural resources and we are a natural resource place, you know, so how lucky are we? But there are tremendous opportunities in so many destinations and maybe the beach towns, and I use that as an example, because I'm looking at their data, but they get a lot of attention because of the uniqueness of our fresh water. But think of all the rivers and streams and inland lakes and, and then all the trails and woods and, you know, just stunning natural resources across the state. So you can't pick a county in our state that doesn't have something magical happening. So can they establish stronger you know, tourism um, opportunities, absolutely. And there's a lot of variables that impact that, right? And that's the uniqueness of our industry and even the associate, your association, right? Like it's bringing all these different entities together to create a tourism product. We need everybody. We need transportation. We need restaurants. We need hotels. We need attractions and things to do. We need outdoor resources, right? Or, or we don't have a tourism experience. So I think the really fascinating part of our state is, again, it's you got to you got to want to come here to come here. We don't get the luxury of having people just casually drive through and be amazed. So so things like Pure Michigan are so critical. Again, I'm a marketer by by heart. Right. I'm a marketer and a researcher. And you got to tell people and show people if you're going to get them here. And I think that that's where they've done such a great job you know, let's say before COVID and, and before the funding was cut, you know, to be honest, um, there's a direct relationship to getting people here and having the experience, but then creating the opportunities for people to, to have, you know, in throughout the state. And maybe that's what Michigan Cares taught me the most. So that's a perfect lead in to Michigan Cares for Tourism, because you literally protect those natural resources through this initiative. Can you kind of explain what Michigan Cares for Tourism is and how that idea came about now that and now that it's stuck around for 10 years? Yeah, for 10 years now. I know. Isn't that crazy? I, I still can't believe it's been over 10 years. How did I get so old so fast? Wait, what happened? But Michigan Cares for Tourism, I, I describe it as a volunteer partnership with Michigan's entire tourism industry, where we come together, volunteer and donate to Michigan's historic, natural and cultural resources and attractions to help restore them for the future. So we have them forever. And 100% volunteer, 100% give back. So it's a really unique model, I realized, um, but it worked, you know, and, and I wasn't sure it was going to work, right? It, it goes back to you have a dream. And then I sat on it for a long time. And, and I just said, I'm not going to be happy in my life if I don't try. And then I'll learn, right? And, and learning is what I love the most. So what an opportunity. And it really started back in, I served on a national board of an organization called Tourism Cares back in the early 2000s. And by 2005, it was part of the National Tour Association and the Travelers Conservation Foundation. They merged together, called themselves Tourism Cares. I was on one of the boards and I became a member on the other board. And they did 
iconic tourism location volunteer give back projects. One a year at the big ones all over the U.S. So I had gone to Mount Vernon. I had gone to the World War II ships in Los Angeles. I had gone along the Civil War Trail in Virginia. I had worked along, you know, and done these volunteer projects all over. And I had said to them, I was the only educator on the board, and I kept saying, we also gave away $70,000 a year in student scholarships. So that was part of my involvement in the board. But I said, gosh, I don't do anything without students, but I really try not to. So, (laughs) or it doesn't make any sense to me. So I said, um, I really want to bring students along. It was just industry professionals. And at first there was some hesitation, but I said, just let, just let me bring some and, you know, just see. Sometimes people have stereotypes about students. I have a totally different experience with them and not that there's not flaws like everywhere. Right. But overall, they're so amazing that I couldn't imagine not having them have that experience. And the first four I took to Mount Vernon and watched as they worked alongside the industry and it removed all barriers to communication. You know, they had this common denominator at the time there was a um, hurricane that had hit Mount Vernon and we were picking up logs and sticks. We're working on the land, not the home itself. And there were 350 tours and professionals all working. And then my four little students, right? And they, it was just magical. And all four of those students, all these years later, I'm still close to. Because anytime you get to engage with students, you know, outside of the classroom, those things happen too. You know, you, you form relationships. And, but it really changed even Tourism Care's attitude about students. They, first of all, they brought a lot of energy and they're young. So instead of a 60 year old volunteer, it was a, you know, 20 year old volunteer, but it really, again, it removed the barrier. And, and I just told this story the other day, but when I saw the largest, you know, privately held tour company in the world owner, um, engaging with one of my students. And afterwards I said to my student, I go, Hey, do you, do you know who that is? You know? And he goes, Oh yeah. And he names the person. And, and I go, yeah, but do you know what he owns? You know, do you know that that is the owner of the largest tour company in the world? <laughs> and you just had a great engagement. You high-fived after you got your logs moved, you know, I, it was just magical. So you sit on that, but then the second project I took students to was um, Hurricane Katrina. And students, I was at Central at the time teaching and students, I took 50 students, we took a whole motor coach of students down to the project um, for multi-days down six months after Katrina had hit in Biloxi, Mississippi. And that again, tourism Mecca, we, we worked on nine different tourism sites with 400 different tourism industry volunteers in my 50 students. And those students changed, really changed the moment of my life again. Um, watching them and what they brought to the table to that whole volunteer experience and clearly an emotional experience. It was such an, you know, horrible tragedy in our country, watching um, all the damage that was done to people and to sites, et cetera. But just watching and engaging with students during that experience and, you know, the students and I had to raise all the money to go do that. And at the time it was 18, it was 2006 and it was $18,000 we had to raise. And that's a ton of money. And they did fundraisers in town. My kids were giving their birthday money to the students. Like it was just an emotional, wonderful, life-changing moment. And I said on the motor coach ride home to my students, I said, if I could retire today, I would, because I don't think it gets any better. Um, So after that experience, I got back to Central and I was pretty exhausted, to be honest, because that kind of service work is just uh, over and above what my job really is. And I'm a single mom at the time with three little kids, you know, (laughs) and but it was so moving. And I stayed close to those students again. And and I just went, gosh, we just got to find that model again. Like it just works. It works. The barriers are removed. The work is magical. Everybody brings their all like it. I just had never had any experience like it. So fast forward a couple of years later, it's still in my head, but I don't know how to do it yet. Right. And so 2008 hits 2009 and by about 2010, that's when I decide, okay, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I decide though, I don't want to do it by myself. I had really done that hurricane Katrina experience with students on my own, just kind of me and all those students trying to raise And it. And it not only was too much, I I didn't want to 
not have collaboration and better ideas and better thoughts with other like-minded people. So I decided if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it with others. So I approached Grand Valley and the faculty there and said, hey, I really want to do this project. They were the first ones I went to. And I said, but I don't want to do it alone. And I had worked with them on other things. That's why. So I knew them. But I also knew the university was incredibly giving, the whole community is, right? It's a very gracious, philanthropic area of our state. And I just, they, you know, it was in their mission, for gosh sakes, to work on things, something like this. So I approached them and and asked if they wanted to work on it with me. And they immediately said yes. And they said, what do you need? And I said, I have no idea. I just don't want to do it by myself. (laughs) And, um, but I really did know what I needed to do. I just didn't know what I needed from them. And I thought if I could get the key pieces of an experience together, and if everybody agreed, then we could put all our resources in that we all could come up with and create the Michigan Cares for Tourism model. And that's what we did. So I next approached Pure Michigan and I'll never forget my moment with Dave Lorenz at the time. He was number two in command at the time. And I was really nervous about that presentation because I didn't know he and George well at all. Well, give us some context here, Patty. What, what year are we talking about? Um, this is now 2011. Okay. Yeah, sorry. 2011 no, and I approached them super scared <laughs> <laughs> and- And I give my presentation and George nods and Dave Lorenz looks at me in this meeting and he goes, oh, we're in. So Patty, this started magically with Dave Lorenz and you in 2011. Give us a sense of size and scope of that first year to where we are right now. And then maybe preview a little bit about what's coming uh, later this year for the 2022 version of Michigan Cares for Tourism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Besides, you know, Pure Michigan and Dave and um, Grand Valley State University at the time, the Department of Natural Resource was also a key partner. They had the sites and the need, right? At the time, they had a $40, $400 million maintenance deficit on their historic sites and needed support, not unlike what was happening in other parts of our world, right? Where these iconic things were potential for ruin. And then Indian Trails was the other um, donor that they provided sustainable transportation. So all back then, we got the five of us together. We put our resources on the table and created our first event in 2012 at Mill Lake in Chelsea, Michigan. It was a cabin community that had gone to disarray or, you know, slight ruin. And it was home to the first camp experience for kids from inner city Detroit to come out and see the outer doors historically from the early 1900s. So those cabins uh, needed some you know, TLC and some attention. And we asked the industry to trial our first event and see if they would come. And, and we had a hundred people come and volunteer at that first experience. At the end of the day, I said to everyone in the industry, okay, should we do it again? What do you think? Like I I can put my time and energy into a lot of things. Right. And if this doesn't work, this doesn't work, but we, we, we have made an attempt and actually one of my alumni from CMU days, um, Jamie Furbush, who's out of Frankenmuth convention of visitors bureau said, you know what, Patty, I got to tell you, you know, only because I knew you for so long did I decide I needed to come, (laughs) but and I was kind of rolling my eyes because it was a Sunday, Monday experience. And Sunday we do a fam tour. So people get to learn about the destination and meet others from the state and the industry across disciplines. And she said, I rolled my eyes. I left my family on a Sunday. And she said, but after this experience, we have to do this again. And I'll just never forget that conversation. Everyone was in agreement. They, it was they captured it like I captured it at those other experiences. They got it. And, and then we started. So since then we've done 42 events since 2011. I call the multi-day ones, our signature events where we actually get to do a fam tour and learn about the destination. So we become stronger tourism providers. And then we spend at least a day or a day and a half giving back and volunteering for the project. Those events have had up to 450 people volunteering. We typically sell out. Um, we have, since our, really our first year, we've sold out every event and maximized work we could do on a site at one time. We've had that expe- same experience for the MRLA, which 
merged in lodging and became, you know, added the L and became restaurant and lodging in 2019. And one of the first things we, we wanted to do to help team build a, a larger staff and, and to be engaged with this side of the industry was to partner with Michigan Cares for Tourism. And it's been a great team building experience for us. I think there's, there's pride in, in, in doing some of the physical labor and seeing the results of that labor in the, in the exact same day, especially when you know that these are unique and special destinations that people, some of them iconic locations that people associate with the state of Michigan. It's been a great experience. Staff has been, we're, we're back last year at the, the Battle Creek Zoo. Binder Park, I believe is the name of the zoo. Uh, another great experience. Staff has requested to, to not do brush clearing, Patty, if that's possible for us in, in the future. <laughs> Outside of that, everyone uh, uh, had an ex- exceptional experience. What's coming in 2022? Where, uh, where can people sign up and how uh, and where are you going to be? Yeah, 2022, we've actually done a couple small events, but our signature event this year is um, September um, 11th and 12th. Fam tour on the 11th. The 12th is the volunteer day, which is um, Monday, and that's at Cambridge Junction. Um, or the Walker Tavern in Irish in the Irish Hills. Um, uh, stunning again, historic location. Yeah, you're um, right. I don't think enough people talk about the Irish mark, Hills. This does mark our million dollar year of giving. We've had over 3,500 tourism industry volunteers, over 400 organizations donate to make that magic happen. And this year, again, with our million dollar year of labor and supply savings to the sites around Michigan, to those 42 locations. So we're really excited about this year and people can sign up certainly at our website, www.michigancaresfortourism.org. And we uh, just look forward to the industry coming together again. We're back to our big signature events after a couple of years of smaller events, as you mentioned, I can certainly make sure you're not doing brush cleaning. You can, <laughs> at this site, you can do painting you're we're going to build a pavilion for them to have entertainment we're going to work on access trails so they can have trails through their property that are accessible to persons with disabilities like it we've got seven different projects already earmarked for this site and it'll it'll again make visitors have allow visitors to have a better experience but it'll also bring attention you know to this destination as a one of the other magical places in michigan well, I love it. You can count on the MRLA support again. It's a, it's an absolute great event. One more time on the website. It's michigancaresfortourism.org. And hey, if you haven't been back to Binder Park Zoo, because the entrance that you guys did all that work on is stunning. And I just worked on another project last week in Battle Creek and the the um, CEO of the zoo was there and I said, and she still talks about the wondrous everybody did. So <laughs> I know difficult, I'll tell you, rewarding. You guys did great work. It's worth it. <laughs> uh, we love that zoo. I have three young kids. You, you can count on us being back there at some point this summer. All right, Patty, let's go for the lightning round. What is your go-to place to visit in Michigan? You know, it, it depends who I'm with and what season of the year. So I, I have to say it, but right now, I'm a water baby, so it would have anything to do with water and a boat, a kayak, a swim. And so, again, I'm in my, you know, heaven glory living in the state of Michigan. So That's smart. You didn't make her choose amongst her children, basically. She gets, you can just say water, and that is a solid, generic answer covering a lot of space yeah. in the state of Michigan. All right. What's the last show? <laughs> yeah, I'm going that... kayaking today. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Perfect. Um, what's the last no, show that sorry, you streamed? I don't. Oh, you know what? Um, the last total stream, like binge stream, was The Crown with my daughter oh, good and my mother. It's awesome. It's a good one. I think, I don't know when the next season's coming out. Anyway, okay, uh, I'll get distracted. Text or phone call? Phone call. How about last song Except you Texas listened to? Except Texas Awful Efficient. Ooh, uh, John Nair, any of them. I, uh, I Every day on my Alexa so I just asked for play my favorite music and John Mayer comes on. <laughs> nice. It knows you. All right. Last one. What's it your does. favorite? It's scary. <laughs> what's your favorite type of restaurant to visit as a consumer? Oh, you could already guess this because what I said, but absolutely outside and on the water. And what I will say, and I look for any goodness from COVID and the one is more outside seating at every restaurant 
and I am in heaven. So in that regard, COVID did us well in terms of my desire, and that's to eat outside every meal. <laughs> that is so true. It's a positive, one of the few, we'll take it, positive trends for the industry from, from COVID. Well, Dr. Patty Janes, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, just sharing the story and uh, talking a little bit about Michigan Cares for Tourism, which is an absolutely fantastic experience. And I hope those who are listening uh, sign up and volunteer themselves. Oh, gosh, I do too. And thanks, thank you both so much. And can't wait to see you at the next project. And um, thanks for all you do to bring us all together as an association and just appreciate all your support. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. Enjoy that kayak trip today. Thanks. Right. I will. It's a beautiful day in Michigan. <laughs>